Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I am Greta Johnson, and this is Power Up, a project from Nerd App Podcast. In a fast and loud and busy world, sometimes it can feel exhausting just trying to keep up. So we're asking fascinating people how they handle life's hurdles. How do they set themselves up for success, power up, and recharge their batteries? Today, we're talking with an OG in the world of business, an incredibly successful tech entrepreneur you likely haven't heard of. So before we begin, what should I call you? Do you prefer Stephanie or Steve? Well, if we were face-to-face, you could give me a little curtsy and then it could be Dame (laughs) Stephanie. But I think because it's radio, we'll just have Steve, please. (laughs) This is Dame, Dame Steve Shirley. She is the founder of Freelance Programmers, and her story is pretty incredible. She started the business in England in 1962. She hired almost exclusively women who worked from home. And by the time she stepped aside several decades later, the company was valued at $3 billion. So how did she do it? Today, I talk with Steve about the extraordinary obstacles she had to overcome and what she calls the facts of life for a businesswoman in the 60s. So when did you decide to not be called Stephanie and to be called Steve? Well, I date from the days, Greta, when uh, women were not really expected to do serious business. It Uh might be all right to run a little hat shop or something like that. And I was launching out uh, in a very amateur way literally dozens of promotional letters sort of trying to introduce my company's software services to left, right and centre and getting absolutely no reply whatsoever. And my dear husband um, suggested that I use the family nickname of Steve. So instead of writing with this double feminine, Stephanie Shirley, Shirley being my marital name, I was Steve Shirley. And they didn't know until I walked through the door that he was a she. Do you think that worked for you? I mean, did you get higher responses? Wow. Absolutely. It all started off. Very definitely, it was my first bit of strategic marketing. And even today, Greater, there are women who dissemble in a similar sort of way by using um, androgynous names like Joe and Leslie. So I don't think it's all in the past. So we're talking about the late 50s and early 60s. What did software actually mean at that time? Well, the market really was commercial work, things like payroll, which, apart from the size of some of the files, I found quite boring. Um, I'm a scientist, or I was a scientist, and I hit a, a happy compromise with operational research work, scheduling coaches, timetabling 
freight trains for British Rail. That was a very big early project. Wow. So those sorts of commercial things that really had a scientific basis. And you mentioned a science background. What did you study in college? Well, I studied at evening classes, um, and I took a, an honors maths degree. And I, I was very lucky in that I always knew exactly what I wanted to do, the world's greatest mathematician. And then at 18, I realized I wasn't going to make that. <laughs> and luckily, computers came along, and I have been able to make an impact in the computer industry. So how long did you want to be a mathematician, ever since you were a young girl? Oh, yes. I, I had to change schools twice in order to be taught mathematics because girls' schools in my era were, um, were the only science that was appropriate for a girl to learn was botany. The science but, of flowers um, and growing things. The science things. of flowers. Very pretty, isn't it? Yes. Uh-huh. It's lovely. <laughs> Do you have a first memory of a computer? Yes. um, Another student at the evening classes I was going to was working on a computer. He told me about it and he sort of said, you'd find this interesting, Steve. Come along and have a look at it. So I went and hung around his computer laboratories, they were called in those days, and learned the very, very rudiments of programming. And I was fascinated by this console of switches uh, fascinated by the odd sort of noise that the machine made that sort of noise Um, and um, as I got more experienced I could actually tell the sort of activity that the computer was carrying out by the noise that it was making. So that was your first instance of really getting to to play with a computer so how did you go from that in night school studying math to running a software company? I worked in the public service and for a small uh, subsidiary of the British computer company, ICL. And in both of them, I kept coming across the so-called glass ceiling. And I'd been patronized as a child. I wasn't going to be patronized as an adult. And eventually I decided I'd had enough Um, And I was going to set up a software company to focus on the software rather than the hardware of the computer um, and have it really, really the sort of company that I wanted to work with. And I knew that lots of other women would like to work in that sort of company. So it was highly flexible, very much team working. Um, you know, I would check your work in the morning. You would check my work in the afternoon. Um, very flat organizational structure. And it was just a very different sort of company that people laughed at, laughed at for its structure, laughed at because we were all women working from home. And they laughed because at that time, nobody would try and sell software. Software was given away free with the hardware. And so the concept of a software house was very alien. So essentially what you're saying is the company you wanted to work for and the leadership style that you wanted to have didn't exist at the time, so you made it up. I made it up, and, you know, it stood me in good stead. (laughs) I just love that so much. Why did you decide to predominantly hire women? 
I wanted a company that was suitable for me, that I would like to work in. And I knew that there were lots of women who had also hit the glass ceiling and were completely and utterly ignored by the industry. IBM, for example, employed quite a few um, women and trained them very, very well. But as soon as the women wanted to go part-time because they were taking on domestic responsibilities, um, they they didn't allow part-time systems engineers. And they all came to me, (laughs) well-trained, in IBM, thinking, oh, that's wonderful. I had a good break there. There was a really fascinating moment through the course of history and your story specifically as well, which is the anti-discrimination laws that came into effect, and I think it was 1975? It was indeed. There we'd got this policy of employing women, and minute number one in the company's annals was that it shall be the employment policy to provide jobs for women with children. And I did actually talk about jobs. And then I realized how important training was, and that changed to careers for women with children. And then later on, as I've explained, it came women with, with dependents. And when the equal opportunities legislation came through, you would think somebody like me would be absolutely delighted. <laughs> right. And a bit of me was. <laughs> but it made my made my business model illegal. And so... <laughs> We really had to rethink everything and um, start to employ men with equal uh, opportunities in all ways, as long as they were good enough, of course. (laughs) And before that law took into effect, do you know what percentage of employees you had were female versus male? Oh, 95, 97% or something. (laughs) Of the first 300 um, staff, 297 were women. I mean, oh that's gosh. what we did. That. And it, it sometimes worked against us greater because people would remember us for what we were rather than what we were capable of doing. And one really had to battle that, that we weren't just seen as, oh, this funny little company of women. We were memorable, thank goodness. Um, but we did break into a male world. That meant also then that you had to work twice or three times or four times as hard to prove your excellence? I think that's always true for women have to be that much better if they are to survive in a mixed environment. Um, we certainly measured our own productivity and I think we it came out at about plus 40% because we focused on the task in hand. We were not um, in an office environment, so gossiping, what did you do at the weekend? Did you see this bit on television? And did you know so-and-so? Um, we just got on with the work. And um, we were highly performing. And, and, you know, we became a large corporation. Um, when we were acquired in 2007, we were valued at $3 billion. And um, we did then employ 8,500 staff, men and women, which is how it should be. What was it like to have that happen after building this thing from scratch because nothing else existed like it? Oh, that's success, isn't it? I'm just disappointed that not more people followed the the model. Um, But, you know, I did feel very proud of the team. They were were good and had excellent people. I mean... uh, 
one of them became president of the Australian Computer Society. Um, these were really tip-top people who had come to me because they could grow. And I think of myself as a gardener. I can grow people, or I did in those days. That's funny to hear you say that, given the the fact that you told me earlier about how botany was the only thing women could study. <laughs> you are a botanist after all. Perhaps. <laughs> yes. I Thank you. <laughs> After the break, Steve tells us about when she learned to prioritize self-care. I was not a superwoman. I was not going to be able to do that again. And that I really had to look after myself, which I have done ever since then, really. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Nerdette. I am Greta Johnson, and I've been speaking with Dame Steve Shirley. She's a businesswoman turned philanthropist and an octogenarian. Here's what she does today to maintain peak Steve. Um, I don't do dinner parties. I don't go to trivial receptions. Um, I keep that balance to make sure that I've got the time and energy to do what I want to. And I haven't smoked for 50 years Um, I hardly drink a glass of champagne, but nothing else. Um, What I do do is I swim twice a week, and that keeps my physical energy up because you're talking about power, and power is, 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 is physical as well as mental. One of the things that women want is a, is a balance of power between home and work, and I never have actually got that. I am a workaholic. My son was took an extremely amount of... My son was autistic and took an enormous amount of care. And so somehow I made those two things balance. The only time I forget work is when I was with my son. And the only time I forgot my Gilesy was when I was working. Your son. And in some way, that kept me going for about 15 years. Um, and then... I collapsed. I just realized I couldn't do it anymore um, and was ill, taken to hospital, and um, took a long time to get my mental health back. Wow, that sounds like a very difficult time in your life. Yes. Um, looking back, I, I mean, yeah. In my memoir, I write about the good things and the bad things. It's called Let It Go with a pun on the IT. Um, But when I came to write about those difficult times, I found it was almost impossible to 
um, take myself back into that period of stress without making myself nervous and anxious again. Mm. So I find I, I look to the future. Um, my son died 20 years ago, and so that pressure has gone. I'm very sorry to hear about the loss of your son. Thank you. You seem to have a really good handle on taking care of yourself. Was that partly a result of the mental problems that you mentioned? Yes. I mean, Did, were you just completely overworked for 15 years and you broke down and that was when you realized you needed to change your life? Well, I realized that I was, I was not a superwoman. I was not going to be able to do that again and that I really had to look after myself, which I have done ever since then, really. But I think some of my resilience comes from my refugee start, I mean, I was a refugee from Nazi Europe in 1939, and that left me anyway with the classic survivor guilt, the, the irrational guilt that I survived when a million children didn't. Um, and that led to that awful depression, and the only sort of... Um, counterbalance to that depression that worked for me is compassion and so as a philanthropist I have got well on top of that depression and no longer have mental health problems. I hope that comes through over the airwaves. Absolutely I can't imagine how overpowering survivor guilt must be especially when you are in such a successful place but also completely overworking yourself. I mean what a what an intense contradiction of terms for you to deal with at that time. Well, I de I'm determined never to retire. I don't like to fritter a day away. And I'm passionate about making sure that mine was a life worth saving. And that, I think, is what drives me. And it's still as strong today as it was 75 years ago. Stephanie, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. That's lovely. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. We also want to hear from you. How do you recharge your batteries? How do you make sure that you are peak you? Here is an idea from Jesse in Chicago. Lately, the way I've been powering up is by playing an MMO called Guild Wars 2. Initially, I was too embarrassed to admit to people that that was my way of powering up, but as my best friend wisely reminded me, Nerdette is all about being unashamed of your nerdy passion, so I can't solve my problems in real life by hitting them with an axe, but I sure can online. Thanks. Love the show. Oh my god, I love that so much. Own your nerdiness. It is always totally cool. I am not much of a gamer myself, mostly because I'm just like terrible at actually seeing things on screens. But I love that that is what you do, Jesse. Tell us how you recharge your batteries. You can record yourself on your smarty phone and then email it to us. Our email address is nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. The show is produced by myself, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our coach is Trisha Bobita. If you're wondering about Trisha, she is recharging her batteries herself right now. What is she doing to power up? A friend of mine has convinced me that I should learn to play chess because somehow I made it to 30 years old and I don't know how to play chess, which is kind of weird. So yeah, I'm going to learn how to play chess. 
That is so weird that she's never learned to play chess, but, you know, it's better late than never, right, nerds? Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. Our intern is Stefania Gomez. Tell us how you power up, record a hot tip on your phone, and email the file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. And it is also super helpful if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Many thanks to K Punger for the review. KP Unger Kapunger. I'm not quite sure, but thank you very much for leaving us stars. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerdat Podcast. Hey. We have a newsletter. It's pretty cool. I'm definitely going to put in a link to a cookbook. We're probably going to talk about that raccoon because you know everybody is. You can sign up for that on Facebook or by going to wbez.org slash nerdsletter. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Power up. Gotta tell you, though, already pretty disappointed that chess is not like wizard chess. I would like there to be more chess violence in chess. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.